2: and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for July twenty fifth, two thousand twenty one. I'm
3: your host, David McLaughlin.
2: Joining me as always, welcome Katherine Smith.
3: Greetings from Atlanta.
2: And welcome Tim Schifflet.
1: Good evening, sir.
3: Yes, um, excited about this
2: show, our guest, um, Uh, One of the books that has been talked about so much of the early part of the summer and mid-part of the summer, Michael Bender from the Wall Street Journal is going to come on to discuss his book, Frankly We Did Win This Election, The Inside Story of How Trump Lost. And so um, we'll have Michael on here in about 20 minutes to ask him all kinds of questions uh, about the election and the perspective he was given um, you know, a lot of access in writing this book. Uh, but until then, we're going to discuss uh, what unfortunately has been the issue um, that is most frequently on people's minds over the past uh, roughly 18 months. And just when you think it's going to get better, it gets worse. Um, and that would be COVID. Um, vaccines have been out for many months now. But um, the You know, like many germs, uh, they get stronger, and the Delta variant and the fact that some folks won't get uh, vaccinated has been a recipe for a rough end of the summer so far with the predictions that it will get worse before it will get better. Um, Tim, it's my understanding you have got more facts and figures before we talk about any political, social implications of this. Uh, Give us some of those.
1: Well, as you mentioned, the decline bottomed out um, in June. At that point, it was the lowest daily average of confirmed cases in like 14 months. Well, since then, the numbers have been on the upswing in a precipitous way, almost exclusively, uh, experts say, among the unvaccinated. 99.2% now of all hospitalizations and deaths are unvaccinated. Um, This Delta variant, far worse than the original. They think 20 times more likely is a person to contract this Delta variant than the original variant. So if you're unvaccinated, man, you are really rolling the dice now. Uh, some hospitalization rates uh, around the country have tripled within the last month. Uh, Florida, Arkansas, Missouri, Nevada, and Louisiana, their rates are like two to three times the national rate. Only Washington, D.C., Virginia, and Maryland have adjusted rates below the national average. But saying that, all states have experienced increases. Uh, take, take this one state here. I thought this was fascinating. The state of Maryland, which I just mentioned, their, their rates are below the national average. But in the past two months, every last person who has died with COVID in that state was not vaccinated. Unfortunately, Maryland is not alone like that. And around the country, you got rates 95, 96, 99, and 100% unvaccinated people. 56.6% now of people above the age of 12 are vaccinated. But you add in the children, and... It's 48.8% nationally. Remember when President Biden was hoping by July the 4th to have 70% of Americans vaccinated? Well, I'm sorry to say, you know, the, the vaccination rates, according to experts, which were in the thousands per day uh, in some places, have slowed down to a veritable trickle. Uh, that's just some of the data that we're seeing. Obviously, none of it good.
2: Yes, Catherine, um, maybe the goal should have been that we, 100% of the people over the age of 12 will have access to the virus, Because I'm sorry, access to the uh, vaccine, um, and then we would have met that goal. Oh,
3: yeah, because I think everyone, I mean, with rare exceptions, I think everyone has access to the vaccine, it's mind-boggling that people um, are not responding to this uh, uptick with the Delta variant, though I guess there is some anecdotal evidence that there are increases in demand for the vaccines just in the last week or so. I have a friend who works for the CDC and he told us that last night, but it's it's minor. It's not a, a giant increase. Uh, it's just um, it's it's just hard to imagine, uh, even without you know. I mean, obviously, the three of us are news junkies and we pay a lot of attention. But even if you're not paying that much attention and watching all the news and reading uh, the newspapers or whatever. It seems like it would be pretty obvious that getting the vaccine is the thing to do right now if you want to, you know, protect yourself and your family and the people around you. So it's uh, it's puzzling.
2: Yeah, I saw something uh, a few weeks ago about the Delta variant, and apparently the viral load. And I don't want to get too deep into medical talk because I have. Uh, not the background for it, but the viral load, which is like how much of a, a virus or disease gets in you, is far greater. And and I saw even several weeks before that, uh, before the the um, delta variant uh, emerged, that the viral load was one of those things. Because you know one person to get it and and they'd you know not suffer too badly, and another person to get it and they would suffer mightily and what was the difference and someone explained, I believe all this was on Vox, B O X, um dot com that the viral load was the key thing and when I heard, well the viral load is, is greater in the delta variant, I thought, well that's not good on what I'd heard. Um so that's kind of scary. Now, where this thing is really raging is a lot of um states that have less vaccination rates. Um you know, Republican-led leadership, and a lot of the Republican uh, governors and what have you um, have kind of changed their tune, and the one that I guess caught our attention the most was Alabama Governor Kay Ivey. Like, she pretty much said, I'd blame the unvaccinated for, um, you know, the the increase in that state, because Alabama has the lowest vaccination rate. They don't have the worst consequences yet, but they have the lowest vaccination rate, and, Things aren't going good in parts of, you know, the Yellowhammer State either. Um, Tim, what did you think uh, of her being so blunt? Well, uh,
1: she, she's telling the truth. I mean, there, there's no way you can deny what she said being the truth. Now, people are going to attack her for it, blah, 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 blah. But look, I mentioned Florida. You're getting ten thousand cases a day right now. Ten thousand—it's just exploded. We know who's getting the virus right now, and we know why. This surge is exclusively uh, among the unvaccinated. Who said that? Catherine mentioned them a while ago. The C—a spokesman for the CDC said that just last week. Uh, so my question to these people who are not vaccinated, you know, what, what are you thinking now? I mean, it's hitting you. There, there, it's, not, it's not hitting anyone else. If, if, say, I were to get it, more than likely, I would not get sick enough to go to the hospital or, you know, anything worse happened to me. This is happening to these people who are not vaccinated almost exclusively
2: it's just mind-boggling yeah um on twitter jumbo elliott he shared a video that i believe it was on cnn the person who was interviewed maybe it was cbs um this morning this guy in um baton rouge uh, louisiana got interviewed from the hospital where he had tubes in. I think he had been on a ventilator. And they said, if you could go back and get vaccinated, would you? He said, no, I don't trust the government. And so this whatever is in their mind about how they distrust government and medicine and doctors and dislike Anthony Fauci, that takes precedence over everything. Um, Catherine, uh, getting back to Kay Ivey's statement, now let's just – we're a political show. Um right now she doesn't seem to have a serious um Republican opponent and she does have some people running but none of them look serious do you think that type of statement knowing who doesn't trust vaccines by and large um could she possibly um get a primary opponent to the right at least on the issue of um vaccinations and masks
3: Oh I suppose they'll you know someone might Decide decide about that. I just want to go back to something else. I have a little bit of—I have lost my patience with uh, someone like Kay Ivy, who, you know, was quick to reopen the state, refuses to have mask mandates, you know, uh, didn't really call the alarm on this uh, on COVID early, along with so many other. Republican governors and other Republican leaders, for them to now be like, oh well, it's all the fault of the vaccinated, the unvaccinated. I mean, it's true. Tim's right. She's she's correct, but uh, it's a little bit of backpedaling when you think about, well, maybe if we had, if everyone had taken this more seriously, then maybe people wouldn't be so unwilling to get vaccinated. I mean, I think there's, you know, there's always going to be some people who, you know, don't trust the government or don't want to have a vaccine. But I think these large numbers are, I think, in part because we didn't hear a big oh, – there were a lot of voices that were not taking it as seriously or um, mandating some, the, the precautions that we know work. But as far as KIV. I wouldn't be surprised if she got a um, a candidate to run against her, partly partly because of statements like this and partly because she's a woman governor in the South. And uh, I can imagine that there's some people that aren't comfortable with that on the right. Well,
2: now, to be fair to Alabama, Lorraine Wallace was um, elected governor decades ago. Um <laughs> Alabama has a better history uh, with that kind of thing than a lot of states, including, say, Georgia. And yeah. up until recently, um, Iowa, I think, had a, a pretty yep. poor track record.
1: But but Catherine makes an astute point, and, and and here it is. This would have meant a lot more if Kay, Kay Ivey and some other Republicans had said similar things a year ago, in the middle of the mm-hmm. presidential campaign. Instead, no, they were silent. One that really irks me is Mike Parsons. He's the governor of uh, Missouri. And that state, incidentally, has the worst explosion right now of all the states. There's one state firmly under control of the Republicans, and they have just universally refused to go along with Anything that the scientists and healthcare experts and, and the government right now, the federal government right now, has asked them to do, they refuse to do anything. and they are paying a massive price right now in in, you know, uh, in the health of their people. Uh, these politicians need to be punished. For they're just total failures for political reasons to risk the lives of their citizens that they're supposed to take care of, and they're just simply not doing it. And even with these numbers that I cited, even with the things we're talking about, we see state after state after state after state, especially red states, very especially red states, exclusively red states, who are not— you know, meeting the challenges they need to meet. And I just don't know what it's going to take for them to, you know, come awake and do something about this.
2: Yes, Missouri is a state, I think, that's going to have some type of political reckoning down the line. Um, We didn't get the chance to discuss it a while back, but, um, you know, they had a referendum where they passed – Um, Medicare expansion, Um, it was a voter referendum, got passed, the Republican legislature just pretty much repealed, ignored, vetoed, whatever you want to say, the will of the people. And I think that's going to be um, a real major thing that uh, Republicans in Missouri are going to have to get over. Also, their state has two large cities, Kansas City and um, St. Louis that are probably just not at all on board with a lot of the rest of the state. And that's – and it's not to say which one's right or which one's wrong. I mean they're all one person, one vote. But it is kind of weird how they have these two population centers that are probably – in some ways I would say even St. Louis might be to the left of the average person and even maybe the Democratic Party. And then the rest of that state is far to the right of, um, I think, the average person. And the country, and that's kind of a, a mix of where you really can't, um, you know, get things passed. Uh, well, now, let me, Catherine, let me ask you another question. More broadly, is do you think that this resistance to the vaccines and then to mask, which was a medical um, preventative tool, do you see this moving into other areas? where republicans begin to trust and i don't mean all republicans i mean the ones that are anti-vax anti-mask those type of voters and citizens begin to trust less and less medical care overall
3: well that's an interesting question um i think it i think that people probably trust and respect their individual doctors, if they've had a long relationship with their doctors. I think it's the national message around vaccinations and masks that is really um, carrying this uh, anti-vaccination thing. I, I think that, you know, if you go to your doctor regularly and they tell you to, you know, cut down on fat or, you know, exercise more, I think that's more likely to be trusted than the president saying, you should be exercising more. That's my general, just think that it's the national uh, message and the liberal scientists and the liberal, you know, journalists that are, um, that get their goats.
2: Yes, um, Well, I tell you what. If if Joe Biden wants to give me medical advice about how to keep going strong at such a high level into my late seventies, well, I'll take it because he's living it. Uh, Tim, same well, question. Um, do you think this seeps over into other areas of medicine?
1: Well, you know, I want to remind you how a a different president and a different administration a year ago treated uh, medicine uh they they were attacking people like uh Dr Fauci making it a political issue uh making him a political issue uh they were they were hamstringing the CDC um all of that and you know it has a cumulative effect and it will on all medicine for a while i suppose uh But Catherine is right. People do trust their individual doctors, or at least I hope they do. But how can they (laughs) differentiate between their individual doctor and the rest of medicine? Do they think the rest of medicine is just lined up in another universe or something like that? I really don't get that.
2: Well, I'll say this. Polls show that. You know, they asked people that were unvaccinated, if your doctor told you to get the vaccine, would you get it? Overwhelming majority said no. Um they don't trust their own <laughs> doctor on this <laughs> issue. They don't.
1: Oh my goodness. Well, then who are they going to try? How can they suddenly just say science and medicine are wrong? All, all evidence to the contrary, not, not some evidence, all evidence historically to the contrary.
2: Well, Tim, you're right, all evidence, and we, by evidence we mean fact-based reality science. Yeah. Yeah. But think yeah. about how much this information's is being spread on Facebook. Um, you know, somebody writes something on Facebook, and uh, for some uh, people, don't people do not read laterally? They don't fact check, and they just think it's the gospel. Yeah.
1: Case in point. Case in point. You know, President Biden mentioned uh, the little statement about going door to door to to educate people about the vaccine or to ask people to get vaccinated using volunteers and stuff like this. Fox News took that and said, okay, folks, the government's going to come to your house and force you to get vaccinated. You should have seen what they were saying on Facebook. Well, I sure the government to come to, and it wasn't a word of it, so. Not a word of it was so. They actually thought the government was going to come, drag them out in the street, and stick a needle in them. And, and not a word of it was so. Well, how do you combat
2: that? Yeah. Well, I, I tell you this, for Get Volunteer, you'd have to give somebody combat pay to go door-to-door to talk to some of these unvaccinated yeah, people on the front porch. We're talking local health
1: departments and stuff. <laughs> you know, we're talking local health departments or community volunteers and stuff like that. And look what a major news net and made it into. And people believed it because that's the news that they watch. Yeah,
2: and, and Catherine, speaking of Fox News, um, this past week, um, Sean Hannity, uh, he, you know, made a statement on one segment of the show saying you need to get vaccinated, very pro-vaccination. Now, apparently, the um, other sides of the segment, before and after, were a little more anti-vax in nature, and I think actually Tucker Carlson is more of the um, thought leader on that network now, Um what do you make of Sean Hannity's kind of change in tune? Uh, you know,
3: I I don't know. I mean, it's, well, it's yeah. –
2: uh, might... I'm going to go ahead and break Hello? in now. We're real excited to uh, welcome on to the Kudzu Vine, our guest um, from the Wall Street Journal. Welcome, Michael Bender. Hello, hello. How are you? Yes. Well, Michael, um, we had originally had you on the show to talk about the book, but then you know, we saw the book jacket, and it says um, he's one of the tough ones but has such beautiful hair. So we're just going to go ahead and dedicate the rest <laughs> of the hour to hair care, if you're okay with that. By the way, that was <laughs> Donald Trump that made that statement about your hair.
0: Yeah, I. Uh, it really is the uh, kind of uh, center – Part of our relationship uh, is my hair. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, he 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 complimented every single time uh, I've interviewed him. Every time I've seen him in the White House, and I do. I mean, I, I, I take that as a deep compliment from from Donald Trump. As someone who has spent so much time in, and and uh, uh, you know uh, on his own here, uh, how could I you know how could I take it any other way? <laughs> absolutely but i will not be giving any i will not be giving any tips any any hair care um uh, strategies it's like uh you know that'd be like a magician giving away you know his trick. so so please don't even you know try to go down that road.
2: Definitely so. Well, well, we'll go ahead and seriously back up and ask the traditional question. Um, I mentioned, you know, your day-to-day job is um, writing for the Wall Street Journal. Tell our listeners um, a little bit about your biography and your work. If you want to start in birth, if you were born with or without right hair, feel free. But but kind of fill in the details.
0: Sure. Yeah. I've been a, I've been a journalist for two dozen years. I uh, worked at newspapers in Ohio, where I'm from, uh, Colorado, uh, Florida for a long time, and uh, been in D.C. Uh, a little, little less than uh, 10 years, I guess, now. Uh, maybe it's maybe shorter than that, seven, eight years. Um, and uh, I've covered Trump since he started running uh, in the 2016 election uh, for the Wall Street Journal, uh, and then all four years in the White House. And the uh, 2020 campaign, and um, and now it looks like uh, you know moving forward here too, he's going to be he's going to be a you know major figure in Republican politics, and and I, I and I'll probably keep him as a you know as my beat here moving forward too.
2: Yes, sir. Hmm. Well, um, so as part of that beat, you were able to write, um, I think what'll go down as one of the most important books covering the 2020 election. Uh, frankly, mm. we did win this election, uh, the inside story of how Donald Trump lost. Um, did you figure out early on that you could make a book out of this, or, or did you um, uh, kind of did it evolve over the time of coverage? Yeah. So I'd always kind of thought about
0: uh, over my career in, in newspapers, different ideas about, um, you know, writing a book. Um, and I you know, I've had a front row seat for, for President Trump and uh kind of felt like if I didn't try now, um, you know, I was never, you know, there was I couldn't really let the opportunity pass by here. Just I mean, everything I, I'd been a part of and seen and um, you know, a real a real you know, front row seat to history here. Uh so I went into I went into twenty twenty, um knowing I was gonna write a, a campaign book but what happened is 2020 just turned out to be um not really much about a campaign at all, right? I mean, any any election, any presidential year, um the US presidential race is the biggest story in the world, right? And the way 2020 unfolded, uh I mean, we really didn't even talk about the race until those last couple few months. Um so it turned out to be a much different uh, undertaking than than I had anticipated.
2: Yes. Well, now let's get into some of the stories um, that, that have come out of the book. And I find one of the most fascinating relationships, I guess, in recent politics is Donald Trump and who he was, you know, going into this campaign and is, and Mike Pence. Um, mm-hmm. They were put together, and uh, apparently. Their relationship was not always as warm and fuzzy as Mike Pence would have had you believe in the vice presidential debate.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it mostly was, right? I mean, that that perception we have of, of Pence being a, a loyalist uh, to the point of subservient, um, you know, I think is 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 mostly accurate. I have a, I have a, several anecdotes in the book. Um, uh that uh that, that underscore that. There was a there's one meeting that hasn't been reported before uh in the situation room at the beginning of COVID where where Pence comes in to kind of try to lead the meeting and sees uh and sees the um the presidential seal on the wall and takes uh you know it takes a minute from the meeting to take the seal off the wall in a um you know symbolic gesture of uh You know, deference to the the, to the Oval Office. Since Trump wasn't in the room, then he didn't. You know, then the seal shouldn't be on the wall. And then, you know, people in the room kind of shook their heads and you know wondered what what he was doing. But, but, but no. To your point, there there was a moment uh, early on in 2018 when 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 Pence kind of went right at Trump. And this was over um, uh, uh, news that Pence had hired. Uh, Corey Lewandowski, Trump's uh, you know original campaign manager, uh, the kind of ubiquitous president, uh, presence at the president's side, um, that Pence had hired Lewandowski for his for his pack, uh, and Trump saw this and exploded, and and had you know had 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 yelled at Pence about it, and then given him the silent treatment, and then they were in you know they were sitting silently in the in the presidential limo and 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 Trump just kind of lets out the side of his mouth to, you know to to Pence just you know so disloyal and then Pence had just had enough because as it turned out Pence only hired Lewandowski because Jared Kushner has, had asked him to do it as a favor so so Pence picks up the article throws it back at Trump gets his finger you know basically in his face and says you know you got to get your facts straight here you know we talked to you about this months ago you signed off on this you know Um, And the reason I tell the story in the book is because there were people around Pence in the run-up to January 6th who said, you know, you need to give Trump another get-your-facts-straight moment here and tell him point-blank precisely and clearly that you can't overturn the results of a free and fair election. Um, Well, I mean, Pence and his crew do think he did that, um, but I can tell you interviewing Trump a couple of times down in Mar-a-Lago, that message was not delivered to Trump.
2: Yes. Well, regarding the Pence's, um, I, my understanding, mm-hmm. I think it was an earlier book, uh, early in the, the first term, that uh, Karen Pence has never really seen um, Donald Trump for, um, you know, where a lot of the Republican base does. How much do you think her opinion of uh, Donald Trump um, does Mike Pence have to ignore and how much does he accept?
0: Well, if that is, in fact, Karen Pence's opinion, he ignores pretty much all of it then because, I mean, my reporting is that it's been out in, in, in verified in other places, is that Pence and Trump are talking again. Uh, they've had, you know, a half a dozen phone calls since January 6th to each other, since they left office on January 20th. And, um, you know, I don't think either one has apologized to, to the other about what happened that day. And if you're Pence... You know, your life was in danger. Your family's life was endangered, right? And if you're Trump, you believe that, that Pence has just been so disloyal to the point of treason and gave away the, the election, right? So how either man um, uh, could have those phone calls without apologizing, I don't know. I mean, I asked Trump about it. Trump said, well, we, we don't talk about it. So, you know, there you go.
2: Yes. Well, a final question I have before I pass it to my Mm -hmm. co-host Catherine and Tim, Mm -hmm. that would be um, in the book uh, you you talk about how Donald Trump kind of plans the campaign strategy around – and this is after Joe Biden is obviously going to be the nominee for the Democratic Party – that he believes that the rest of the Democrats will somehow uh, steal the nomination – um, from Joe Biden and Joe Biden will be pushed aside what gave him that idea and, and in what ways did that kind of influence his campaign thinking
0: yeah i mean it it's to the point where uh the 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 main campaign pollster has to spend uh you know a third of a of a campaign memo debunking a bogus theory that Democrats were going to steal Biden's nomination and maybe give it to like uh, Michelle Obama or back to Hillary Clinton. Uh, you know, it's unclear where this, you know, originated from. Uh, some folks think it was, uh, you know, that, that Dick Morris uh, may, may have played into it. Uh, Dick Morris denied that to me. Uh, you know, other other people think it was a, a, one of his other pollsters, or, or at least a, at least there was there, there wasn't really anyone batting this down, and uh, you know there was without having without knowing exactly where it came from i mean Trump has been was paranoid about this himself back in twenty sixteen. He was sure that that you know and not altogether wrongly that the Republicans are trying to steal the nomination from him uh so you know um it, 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 to me it showed Trump was never really able to get his mind around uh Joe Biden as a singular opponent um you know he had a dozen different nicknames for Joe Biden uh you know, he went after Joe Biden's you know, he attacked Joe Biden's son uh for, for, for more than you know more than a year. Um which, you know, who you know, obviously Hunter Biden is not on the ballot here. Um you know, the he he he, he got turned around a couple of times, you know, mid year about when to go on the attack on T V against Joe Biden, how to do it. Uh and meanwhile, um, you know, Biden was able to kind of recover from a pretty bruising primary, raise a bunch of money and get himself get his feet back under him, uh, you know, in time for in in time for the in, you know the final stretch of the election.
2: Yes, um, I would say that you know Jimmy, I'm sorry, uh, Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. and uh, Ted Kennedy never ran against Billy Beer. Um, it, it wasn't a real <laughs> good tack to, to worry about something yeah. that's removed that far. Well, I'm going to pass this over to Catherine, who will pass it over to Jim okay. for more questions. Yeah,
0: sounds good.
3: Thank you so much for being on the show tonight. We really appreciate it. I just, I, I just have a really snarky question to ask. How do you clean your palate from uh, writing all this? <laughs> like working on this, it seems like you'd need a trip to the Caribbean or a you know <laughs> trip to Paris or something to sort of wash yourself of all of this. But it's very well, fascinating and we're grateful that you were willing to do it.
0: Thank you so I, much. I so ask. the answer is <laughs> is my wife is actually the one who gets the first, you know, she's uh, uh, out to um uh Mexico with uh w- with some girlfriends and uh it, it was um it was it, it was a, it was hard to do this book particularly during a pandemic and um right when everybody's routines were Upturned, and everyone's stress levels were higher. And here I come, saying, "Oh, uh, I'm going to try <laughs> to write a book during this." And right, like I had to ask the people I love the most—my my 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 wife and and my my mother and my sisters—to you know to add to their burden to give me some space to to write this. And and you know I'm I'm very very lucky that I have uh, people who are able and willing to to do that for me. So um, I, ca- I definitely count my blessings every day for that. But maybe, uh, you know, well, maybe hopefully the COVID that. next wave, wave holds off and maybe then, I, I you know, I can, uh, you know, get a vacation here at some point too. The Caribbean sounds nice. If you have okay, any. I, you have I, any so. um, I, I
3: think you've earned it. Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you about uh, a couple things. First mm-hmm. of all, what's with uh, uh, former President Trump and his, like, distrust of voting machines? like where did that all come from
0: you know i i mean he'd been i think my, my interpretation of that is that he'd been promise, promising us for years that this is what he was going to do right i mean uh the only way he was ever going to lose an election was by fraud i mean even back what it was earlier in the 2000s when when the apprentice lost uh an emmy he claimed voter fraud right i mean so this is 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 exactly where he was going all along with this and told us as much right uh, uh during 2020 and then when it happened i think partly it was just a matter of kind of finding a, a you know finding a target um afterward and you know there were you know rudy giuliani Sidney powell were able to get their foot into the oval office after uh in, in you know in november um and told him exactly what he wanted to hear i mean i did ask him If you remember, uh, not too long ago, Sidney Powell, she's getting sued by Dominion voting machines now, right? I mean, she's for a lot of money, uh, like a lot of, uh, you know, um, uh, media personalities who have been – who are pushing this hoax. And um, Sidney Powell's defense in court was that her theories, her accusations were so outlandish that no, you know, uh, sort of right-thinking person could possibly have taken her seriously. Well, um, that came out in court b- between my two interviews with, with, with Trump, and I asked him about that in my last interview. And, um, you know, he kind of went through all of the emotions. At first he said he couldn't believe she said that and how stupid it was, and then he didn't, he, he did, he didn't think that she actually did, that it couldn't have been her, um, that it must have been some sort of, like, legal boilerplate, uh, and then kind of ended the little rant by telling uh, telling me that, That that she never formally represented him, um, you know, distancing himself (laughs) from her. So, uh, yeah, it was it was uh, it was something I see, um, you know, see uh, across from
3: me. Oh boy, and Hmm. my other one. These are both really Hmm? kind of the outrageous things that popped out at me when, you know, reviewing your Hitler. Really did some good things.
0: Yeah, how did he? How how, how did he?
3: How did he, like, did he uh, go any further than that? Like, what were those good things that he felt like he did? Did he say? Well,
0: I mean, so I've been asked this before, and it's in the book, but I, it, it's like a dicey question because then I'm sort of in the position of, like, explaining how Hitler did some good things, right? I mean, long, long story short is, like, it, oh, right. Trump's thing point. was, like, the economy, that Hitler was good for the economy, which, like, doesn't matter, and which is also what, what John Kelly, his chief of staff at the time, told him. Right, like they, they, there's, he did not do any good things. Like you cannot say that, and and like don't say it again. He was Kelly was out of his mind that, that 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 you know anyone, let alone the president of the United States would 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 try to debate that there were some good things that Hitler did. Right, um, and this was a conversation that happened in 2018, um, and 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 this is what I do in the book. The book basically goes from impeachment to impeachment, the first impeachment to the second impeachment. So, um, that 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 year or so between. But I've covered the guy for so long here that I, I do try to inject my experiences and more context into, into some of these moments. And, and this one is, is kind of a through line uh, through his administration was that there had long been people who around Trump who were worried he was giving that kind of wink and nod to you know, the white supremacist extremist type of uh, uh, corners of, of, of the conservative base for his own political benefit um and it's a you know it, it's a occurrence that happens several times i mean it comes up during charlottesville um oh, yeah. uh, you know the racial I mean, violence there and then at the end of the administration when in the final you know weeks when trump is bringing in uh what mike Puma, mike pompeo the secretary of state refers to as the crazies um you know mark milley the joint chiefs of staff chairman thinks that w- is worried that some of these folks may have ties to neo-nazism um so you know it, it, it's a concern that and that was what was striking to me about reporting of this book is we, we, you know I didn't want to write another book about like trump chaos you know i mean it it it's an, it's an inherent part of his administration and his campaign and his managing style, but we all know that story right i mean what what struck me about this book was was how dangerous some of the people closest to Trump thought he'd become in those final days when you know, he'd become so des- desperate to hold on to power. I mean, he was telling his administration that he wanted to shoot Americans, right? I mean, the people who were protesting George Floyd's death and you know uh, civil rights abuses. He was telling them that he wanted those people shot in the leg, shot in the foot, their their skulls cracked. Uh, you know, and not a one off. This was, uh, you know, multiple times from the inside the Oval Office. Um, you know, it was just a is it it you know pretty shocking, even even to me as someone who covered. You know. This administration done on a daily basis.
3: Yeah, there there was a lot of shocking things, and as we reflect and read things like your like your books and start when I start thinking about all the things that happened, it's mm-hmm. it's really um, shocking, and uh, I mean, we I think some of us probably feel like we really made it out. In better shape than we probably could have had,
0: mm.
3: you know. i mean, so. Well, yeah, I I'm think there were some people so at the, in, in, your, you know,
0: in the administration who felt that who felt that same way. Hmm.
3: Okay, I'm going to pass it on to Tim. Thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Sure. Yeah,
0: yeah. Go ahead,
1: thank you. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Bender, for being with us tonight. Now, I was sure. watching late on November the third when when Donald Trump. had his gathering in the White House, and he stood Uh, up, and I distinctly remembering him uttering what you uh, have as the title to your book. Frankly, we did win this election. Why did you choose that particular statement from Donald Trump as the title of the book?
0: Yeah, so I I, I sort of do think it's a – I I do think of the title as as the whole thing. Uh, Frankly, we did win the election… The inside Story of How mm-hmm. Trump Lost, right? And I, mm-hmm. and I chose this because uh, it, time and time again, um, what we see with Donald Trump is him imposing his own reality uh, on mm-hmm. on a situation, whether it's uh, COVID, whether it's the, the the protests, whether it's the election results, right? And um, uh, and he and he been successful with that to a degree for much of his life, and. Mm-hmm. You know, here was this was the moment where, uh, again, you, as you say, it's election night. It's after two thirty in the morning. Uh, I report in the book a, a whole scene about you know the the election night and, and aides were trying to get him out to ad- address the country. Uh, he didn't want to go. Uh, Rudy Giuliani's telling him and his team to just say they won, uh, and uh, and then Trump out of nowhere utters this. You know, it was this phrase, which is ad lib, not in the script. Um, and uh, it, it was more, I mean, it wasn't, we didn't know any, who who either side had not won at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was just a, such a striking moment. And I do remember, I, I remember watching it as well and thinking, you know, I mean, I was, you know, you're thinking a lot about the book at that point and thinking that that would be, that would be a good title as a way to underscore uh, the sort, of, sort of disconnect between you know, Trump's reality and, and the facts on the ground a lot of times.
1: Mm-hmm. And in your interviews with Donald Trump,
0: mm-hmm. it,
1: I know what he has said publicly and how he has acted throughout his political and, and business career, mm-hmm. but in his heart of hearts, do you think that yeah. Donald Trump genuinely thinks that he did win the 2020 election?
0: You know, I don't I, – what troubles me about that question is that I've asked it to um, I, to him and the people around him. Uh-huh. And the people around him don't know or are not sure. Wow. And I think he gives different answers to that every day. I mean, you know, this was some of the – Problem early on in November was that the people around him kind of thought that he, that 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 it was a uh, that they you know that he was in on the joke uh-huh. behind closed doors that he wasn't screaming about the election wasn't you know fro- foaming at the mouth as his chief of staff Mark, Mark Meadows used to describe it um, but he was pretty calm and uh, measured and even giving some indications of uh, you know maybe moving on. You know, uh, at some point, um, uh, I was told about one meeting he had after the election had been called, where they were going through the agenda, and um, he said, "I will, you know, leave that. Let's leave that for the next guy," indicating that Mm -hmm. uh, you know there would be a next guy soon. But again, the the way we sort of started this interview, I mean, he'd been telling us all along that this is what he was going to do. That there, and he had never given any indication um, that he was going to move off of that, and. You know when Mike Pence and Ron McDonald, the chairman of the Republican Party, and you know, even Mark Milley decided to give him a give him the space he needs, all that does is mm-hmm. create an opening for Giuliani and Cindy Powell to get their foot in the door and tell him exactly what he wanted to hear. Mm.
1: Um, now, now you talked about um, you, you, the um, campaign um, changing managers midway mm-hmm. through the mm-hmm. election. It, it, is it your feeling that in your following of the election of 2020 that the reelection campaign staff in the home stretch just was not up to the challenge of winning
0: this thing? Yeah, yes. I mean, it's, it, and I go behind the scenes here. Pretty deeply on, on the campaign. Um, uh-huh. I do think you know there, there's plenty of Trump books out there, right? I mean, there's there's 40 years of Trump mm-hmm. books that have been written. There's more coming this year. This is the only one that's going to bring readers inside the room in the White House, uh, under the hood of the campaign, with exclusive memos and texts and and never before reported scenes. And then I also spend, the, which I think is very unique here, uh, two years with some of Trump's most loyal supporters you go to 30, 40, 50 rallies and. And, and mm-hmm. you know and tell their story about who these folks are and why they go back time and time again. When mm-hmm. it comes to a campaign, um, you know, no, he was not well served. Uh, there was infighting from day one. Uh, there was a you know the, the, the first campaign manager was uh, it was was from uh, kind of the advertising world, um, a sort of pop, pop market uh, pop culture marketing type advertiser. And built a campaign that was effectively a PR advertising machine, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which is you know, which is fine for I mean, for especially for a candidate like Trump. I mean, Trump sees uh, branding as creating its own kind of political energy, and you know, in 2016 he was onto something with that, especially for his own uh, political brand. But what happens is that he switches horses, you know, not midway. I mean, with a couple months left, mm-hmm. and the and. He, and he took, takes out his, his sort of advertising exec and puts in effectively an accountant, a kind of nuts and bolts <laughs> uh, political strategist who's who's worried about you know uh, you know ordering you know ordering lunch for the team, um, in the in the campaign office and what that's going to cost. I mean, it's a two billion dollar operation, you know, and they get caught in the in, in the weeds of of some of the numbers on this, and then they end up, end up rebuilding. You know, their data operation and their advertising operation, um, which is all valuable, you know, that was supposed to be their advantage. Their advantage starting opening a campaign three years before Election Day is that you get all that stuff done, you know. Mm-hmm. And while Democrats are fighting with each other um, and have to scramble at the end, um, you're already built and, and built out and ready to go and, and firing it all, you know, from all angles. Well, they were – there's an argument here that they were further behind Biden by the time it came to those last couple of months, uh, which is just an extraordinary thing to think about with the, how much time when you, when you when you realize how much time they had and how much money. So, um, so no, I, I think they were, you know, in that sense, were not up to the task. Um, but ultimately, obviously, you know, it, it's the buck stops with the candidate, uh, mm-hmm. and, the, and, and Trump was the one who was making these final decisions. Hmm. Um.
1: Now, you mentioned earlier in this segment about the president's – the former president's continued dominance of the Republican Party. So it mm-hmm. begs this question. Will Donald Trump run again in 2024? <laughs>
0: um, maybe. I mean I'm sure there's part of him that wants to, uh, but also I know that there's part of him that knows he's got to wait until 2022 plays out Um Mm-hmm. Uh, and informs that decision, right? I mean, for one thing, he's 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 made. I don't even. I haven't looked lately, but I mean, more than two dozen endorsements already uh, in the mm-hmm. in you know this election cycle, all the way for you know U.S. Senate campaigns and, and the Staten Island Borough President uh, race even, and some of these are mm-hmm. Republican primaries. He's endorsing challengers of, of sitting incumbents, you know, and those are, those sitting incumbents actually voted against him. Uh, you know, voted to impeach him, and that's 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 why he's doing it uh, and endorsing their challengers. But it's not an easy thing, um, as you guys know, to unseat an incumbent, right? Even for a mm-hmm. former president who's so popular within his party still. So I think that'll all be um, informative, and you know, I'll have to see what Republicans do here because 2022 is a real um, choice before Republicans. They they have the opportunity here to redefine themselves after, you know, post-Trump. Um,
3: mm-hmm. and I don't
0: know if they'll do that or not, but what I do know, and I know what this book does, is show in new ways and very clear ways that, um, that, they're, that they have to go into that. There's no excuse to go into that decision with anything other than their eyes wide open. Yeah,
1: excellent, excellent assessment. And with that, sir, I'm going to turn it back over to David, David.
2: Okay. Yes, well, Mr. Benner, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Um, of course, you have the book out there. Um, I'm sure it's everywhere. Books can be sold online, in stores. Any certain place you'd rather people go pick it up?
0: Well, I will say we we we've been uh, we've been out of stock a little bit uh, on Amazon for a little while now, but um, we're trying to get that restocked. Uh, back on Amazon and, but the ebook, no matter what is, uh, is available everywhere. So, um, uh, bear with us, uh, if it's not, uh, available at your local store or at Amazon, definitely the, the Kindle or whatever, you know, Apple books or whatever, however you're reading on eBooks. Um, and, and, and the publisher will get this, uh, you know, get some more copies printed up here soon and, um, you know, and, uh, and, and available for, uh, for everyone out there to get.
2: Sounds like a good problem to have. And then, if people like the book so much, they just want to keep reading you. Uh, I know you're in the Wall Street Journal. If there's certain days of the week to look for you, or anywhere on social media, share that with our um, listeners.
0: Yeah, I'm on Twitter at at Michael C Bender, and uh, and in the pages of the Wall Street Journal. Um, but uh, I, I, everything I write is I I I post on on, on my Twitter page, so. Uh, you can watch there or, or, or you know, uh, subscribe to the journal too.
2: Okay, excellent. Well, so glad to have you on. Um, as you keep covering a topic we like to discuss, maybe you'd be so kind to join us down the road at some point as well.
0: Yeah, of course. Anytime, anytime, let me know. It's fun. Thanks okay. for having me on.
3: Thank
2: you,
0: sir. Thank you, sir. Thank
3: you very much.
0: Thank you so much. Yeah. See you. Good night.
3: All
2: right. That was Michael Bender. Uh, frankly, we won this election is his book. Um, pick it up anywhere. Um, I, I tell you what, uh, it doesn't sound like his book will make the dollar tree. Usually that's when you print too many
1: copies. No. Uh, they
2: didn't print enough. And that is an excellent problem to have. Um, well, we just have just a few minutes and let's kind of change courses. We have just this block of time. It's kind of perfect. Um, in the past few weeks, and we weren't on last week because I was on the West Coast, um, uh, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp came out with his first um, re-election ad. Um, he's in the, um, I will say, parking lot. I've, I've actually yet to go to the Braves' new stadium after working at Fulton County Stadium for hundreds of games and visiting Turner Field um multiple times never been to the new place truist park uh, truist stadium something with truist um but he's outside of the stadium and um he talks about several themes but the reason he uses that backdrop is he's not gonna you know back down to the woke mob that took away the all-star game um catherine you've seen the ad now uh what was
3: your thoughts Well, I don't think that focusing on elections and election integrity is probably the best tact for Brian Kemp going into this election. I think it's very controversial. I think there's a lot of people uh, both on the the left and in the middle that have problems with the um, election laws that have been passed in Georgia. And I think he'd be wiser to to maybe focus on business and uh, other things than the elections. I, I, I was kind of surprised by that uh, strategy.
2: Yes. Now, Tim, when he called up the Braves and said, I want to film the, the ad outside the uh, stadium, I think their first thought would be that we saw your last ads. You're not going to blow the place up, are you? Because um, we know he likes to watch things <laughs> up. Um, but, well, but seriously, using that backdrop in the ad um, and then also mentioning Stacey Abrams in the ad.
1: Uh-huh. Well, I guess he thinks he's running against him, uh, as we discussed briefly off the air before we came on the air. Uh, for one of another person, I mean, there's no one, no no one else announced for governor on the Democratic side, so he's got to turn his attacks on her. There's no one else to turn them on, uh, and this stuff about the liberal mob getting rid of the All Star Game and this, and that, and the other. Gee, I thought it was Major League Baseball, who, you know, is is uh, privately owned and has nothing to do – I'm a, a political liberal. I didn't have anything to do with it, and I don't think any liberal voters in Georgia did have anything to do with it. And this, uh, Catherine's right. This stuff about free and fair elections, uh, I think he's between a rock and a hard place just between me and y'all on this because, uh, for one thing, he's just going to anger voters on the left. and and moderate voters who don't want to hear nonsense like that. And number two, uh, Trump has already made his pronouncement uh, about what he thinks about the governor and several other statewide elected Republican officials. And, And I don't think Trump's going to be going to bat for the governor on that either. He's trying to walk a little fine line and get himself back ingratiated with Trump voters. And what do you think, David? Is that even going to work?
2: I, I don't know if it will. And i tell you, he doesn't mention Vernon Jones in the ad. am not sure where he would. Uh-huh. But Vernon Jones has put his uh, yard signs up in a- pretty much every exit um, on the interstate, uh, 285, yeah. 75 that you exit off of. Um, so he, he's got some money. Um, So it seems like that Brian Kemp may at some point have to give some cursory attention to that before he can await a a Democratic race or a Democratic opponent that he doesn't even have yet. Um, And I do think it's interesting he mentioned Stacey Abrams, which I guess if you said, do you want Stacey Abrams of the field to be the nominee, you would take her because if she runs, she's an overwhelming favorite to win the Democratic nomination. Um, but, but him mentioning her kind of tipped his hand. Usually the intro ad would be positive. This is what I've done for Georgia. In my four years I've done XYZ. Maybe well, he's not too proud then, of his record. Then
1: the question then the question is the question is, by going negative in his first ad with an attack ad, has he seen something in his polling data that troubles him? uh to the yeah, that he, thinks he might not even get the Republican nomination, or
2: what's up there? And it may be, and that's what Republican politics are. We talked about the candidates two weeks ago that in um, uh, Alabama that was sending the rocket up, and the one in North Carolina with the monster truck. You know, you got to own the libs, and you got to have grievance politics. And if you went and said, you know, I passed a bill in which we're going to take care of the needs of foster children and pay for their – college education, Um, I passed, um, you know, where every middle and high school in Georgia is going to have a computer science teacher so we can expand computer science jobs. I passed a pay raise for teachers. It was a meager one, but it was one. He, you know, could run on those things. There's probably other things that other folks probably like that I'm not as popular with. I just mentioned three things that I've seen that he's done that seem like they would be broadly popular. But he didn't talk about any of that. He talked about this Mm -hmm. all-star game and voting and everything else, um, which is very interesting to me. Um, We're going to see how more of his, you know, ads play out. And, of course, as other, you know, candidates get in the race, more things about their race. But I I do think that was a a strange way to start. Now, we've talked about this before, and I do want to get to this before we call it a night the Braves, I guess, had to give him permission to film there. And then there may have been some public funding there, so maybe they kind of had to. But the Braves seem to have chosen sides more than uh, a lot of other sports teams do in this state. And certainly if they choose, they almost choose the other side. Um, and, and baseball well, does have a problem where they don't have as many fans of color. They don't have as many younger fans. Are the Braves kind of boxing oh, yeah. themselves in, tying themselves to Brian Kemp like this? Because they hosted a fundraiser for him. Well, uh, here, here's the twenty eighteen.
1: Yeah, here's the oddball thing. The Braves are owned by a company in Colorado, Liberty Media. Now, what are their politics? That's what we need to look at, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, and maybe they look at it one way in Georgia and one way in Colorado, and I don't know. I mean, I know Colorado still has some, you know, more conservative places. I mean, Lauren Bobert's from Colorado, so, you yeah. know, no said there. <laughs> oh. Well, um, great show. Uh, excited to have Michael Bender on the program. Uh, next week, Drew Savicki's going to come back on the Kudzu Vine. Until then, been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, everybody. Good night, guys.
3: We are the heirs of that
2: first revolution. Will a
3: strong and united America still be a force for freedom?